Hi, this is Anthony Brandt. I'm the co-author of The Runaway Species, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best. Do you suspect that you or your company has more creativity than you're currently tapping into? Have you been fed the myth that creativity is something that only some people are lucky to have, but not everyone? Whether you lead a business, lead a team, a classroom, or a household, you're going to enjoy what Tony Brandt, co-author of The Runaway Species, How Human Creativity Remakes the World, has to share in this interview on My Quest for the Best. I'm so glad you tuned in. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Anthony Brandt. Anthony is a composer and professor of composition and theory at Rice University's Shepherd School of Music and artistic director of the award-winning contemporary music ensemble, Musica. He and neuroscientist David Eagleman have co-authored the book, The Runaway Species, How Creativity Remakes the World. Anthony makes his home in Houston, where he's lived and worked for 20 years. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me on the program, Bill. Tony, uh, can you fill in one or two gaps in this introduction and share a glimpse of your personal life to help us understand more about who you are and how you come to this topic? Sure. So I'm a composer, but I also have a lot of interest in music and the brain and have hosted several conferences at Rice about that. And I'm going to be part of an upcoming volume from Oxford University Press about music psychology. So that is one of the things that connected David and me together. Creativity is such a central uh, focus of your book and obviously your life. Was there an experience or sources of inspiration growing up that you look back on now and say, well, it was obvious that this was going to be a, a major theme in my life because of these experiences. What comes to mind when I, I ask that? Oh, that's a great question. So I have to give my parents a lot of credit. They they restricted my sister and my television viewing, and they only bought us construction toys. So we never had a prefabricated toy. We only had things like Legos and Lincoln Logs and, you know, drafting paper and crayons and things like that. And it was a tradition in our household to make our own holiday cards and birthday cards. And basically anything my sister and I wanted, we had to build for ourselves. And I really give my parents a lot of credit for building into our bloodstreams that creativity was just the natural way of relating to the world. And I, thinking back, I remember things like I would turn my room into a museum, uh, you know, say about underwater animals or something, and charge my parents admission, you know, only like 10 cents to come look at it. And it just was part of uh, how I had fun. And even today, in our, my, now my family with my kids, we continue that tradition of everybody making their own cards. That's a terrific and really practical idea to encourage and welcome creativity into a family. How did you get started with it professionally? Was it in something in high school and college that you took up and knew that you always wanted to be involved in, in composition? So, you know, when I, start, I started taking violin lessons when I was five or six and digging through some family memorabilia a couple of years ago, I found this little composition that I wrote when I was six years old about a soldier going off to war. And, you know, I had to laugh because, A, I'm a pacifist, and, B, it was a very simple uh, little ditty, very embarrassing. 
but it was clear that from the moment I did something like playing the violin, I also wanted to, to make the music myself. And, again, I give my parents a lot of credit for just building that attitude. Uh, if you love it, you do it yourself. You find a way to make it. And I got more serious about composition in high school and then in college. I also loved creative writing, but eventually decided that composition was what I wanted to try first. Do you remember making that decision? Was there some experience or conversation that really clarified in your mind that this is the way to go? So one of the most fun things, I think, if you talk to composers is hearing your music being practiced and rehearsed. The performances are always kind of terrifying. You're worried things are going to go wrong. Um, you know, they've got one shot at it live in front of an audience. But in rehearsal is where you hear your piece taken apart and played in slow motion and passages done over and over again. And you really feel what you've thought about and considered at your desk for months come alive in the minds of other people who are doing their best to present it. And those, those types of moments made me really love composition. You and David Eagleman came together to write this book how long ago? We, it took us about four years to write the book, so it was about five years ago. And how did you and David get together and decide that you would be good co-authors? So we've been friends for a bunch of years, um, and David's an amazing scientist. Not only does he do cutting-edge research, but he's also a best-selling novelist. And so he has this wonderful crossing between the arts and science. About five years ago, I wrote a piece for a soprano and orchestra based on a short story that David had written called The Founding Mothers. It's quite an extraordinary story. It traces a maternal line back through history. The mother's ancestors are human, and then they're primates, and then they're living in the ocean, and then finally it's a single-celled organism. And I was I was writing that as uh, turning that into a piece of music, and we were having a lunchtime conversation, and we just got on the subject of creativity in general. And three hours later, uh, we were still talking about it, and we realized that we were our ideas about it overlapped literally 99%. And at the end of the conversation, David said, well, we, we should write a book about this. And that was the start of it. It brings to mind um, a great contrast between Thomas Edison and Nikolai Tesla, who mm. each were extremely creative. But Thomas Edison was convinced that it came through iteration. It came through paying attention and working with large teams of people. He came out with right. hundreds of patents, but he did so by coming up with thousands and thousands of ideas, many of which were just discarded by the waste bin. Absolutely, Nikolai Tesla, right. by contrast, I'm sure you're familiar with him as well. He was also mm -hmm. a towering genius of his time, competed, with, competed for the standard of electricity with his right. uh, DC transformers versus uh, AC transformers. And he was very much a, a loner who came up with a lot of ideas, had maybe, I think, under 20 patents. It was really a fraction mm -hmm. of what Edison came up with because he didn't share, he didn't collaborate, and didn't look to commercialize them in the same way. Now, his work went on to form Westinghouse, which became a major corporation, and Edison became General Electric. So they both made success, but the trajectory of their lives and the satisfaction wasn't due necessarily to their creativity, but the methods that they employed to bring their creativity to market to benefit people. And I, I think that yes. is an interesting point that people who are being creative 
need to know that it comes out of collaboration, just like you did with working with Fed, with with David Eagleman. You collaborated right. together and formed a richer work product because of your personalities, because of what you meant to each other, and through you know exchanging and, and being provocative, I'm sure, with each other in the process. Oh, yes, and, and that's a, a brilliant point. And I wanted to, uh, I'll, I'll add, you know, why did Beethoven move to Vienna? Well, I mean, here's somebody who in uh, musical culture is looked at as this incredible standalone figure, not mindful of his audiences, incredibly revolutionary and so on. But why did he move to Vienna? He moved to Vienna because there were string quartets and orchestras there. There were patrons. Mm. There were people who went to concerts. There were people who played music in their home and had pianos there. He needed to be embedded in a culture in order to thrive as an individual creator. And so what you're saying is absolutely true. However way you slice it, creativity always depends on infrastructure, and it, and, it, and it thrives in situations in which there's this virtuous loop between social engagement and the actions of our own imagination, challenging us to surprise each other and, 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 and awe each other with, uh, you know, our wonderful free thinking. And so, you know, Tesla was an incredible mind, but maybe didn't have the same impact as Edison because he was more cut off. That's right. Isolation is a key aspect of it. There was something that happened last summer. I don't know if, if it came across your desk, but they actually had gone to Beethoven's grave, and as they they dug it up, they saw him. Uh, they saw something that was really, really fascinating and unexpected. Do you know what they saw when they looked inside Beethoven's tomb? He he was doing something which you would not be surprised at, but he was decomposing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know they've analyzed his hair and found that, um, you know, he may have had lead poisoning contributed to his deafness, which is just a tragedy, you know. I know. Um, it wasn't a congenital thing. It was just, you know, from drinking basically too much out of lead mugs, you know. Crystal. Like that. Lead crystal. Yeah. Yeah. Lead crystal, yeah. And yeah. They just didn't know. <laughs> he just didn't know. Yeah. They didn't know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And what's, as you wrote the book, The Runaway Species, which is, is a very interesting title, um, and I'll ask you about that in a moment, but what was, <laughs> what was one of the most surprising things that you came across as you wrote and researched, wrote, edited, and reviewed this wonderful book? It's, it's beautifully illustrated and full of uh, really great stories. So I remember a particular day when I uh, – I would go over to David's house on the weekend whenever he was in town. We'd work for four or five hours on the book. That was our process weekend after weekend. And one weekend I showed up at his house and I sat down at his dining room table and I said, you know, David, why do animals have brains? You know, and he was like, oh, oh, I can answer that. He said, you know, by, you know, evolutionarily, the first use of the brain was for guided motion through space. And then the next one was to be able to make accurate predictions. And the only reason that animals have memories is to be able to better predict the future and explore their environment and have a sense of where they would be more likely to find a positive outcome, whether it was looking for a mate or a place to live or food to eat. And we started to talk further about this, and he told me about something I, I didn't know about, which is this a trade-off in the brain between exploration and exploitation. And that every animal, even if they're in the most bountiful environment and they've got all the food they could ever want, will dedicate a certain amount of their life 
to exploring new environments because, God forbid, a disaster should hit or something unexpected should happen, a predator, and they have to flee. Uh, at that point, everything's on the table. The animal will die if it doesn't find food. It needs to plan in advance and prepared. And so every animal has this balance in their brain between exploration and exploitation. And as we talked about this further, we kind of realized that that was the, probably the evolutionary roots of creativity, that being able to think beyond the present moment and detach from reality and imagine alternative futures, that was where evolutionarily the seed of creativity was born. And I always thought creativity was somehow connected with childbirth and sort of giving birth to things, but from that conversation, I realized it was really about exploration. And so that was sort of a pivotal moment as we were working through the ideas in the book. What's interesting is that a lot of uh, people listening to my quest for the best run their own businesses, are involved in making business decisions, and don't think yep. of their activities as very creative. And yet, if you take a step back, how would you explain that what we do, the decisions we have, the conversations we have, what we write, all has, if not the actual creativity in its, its purest sense involved in it, it does involve the exploration and exploitation of opportunities, and it's much more prevalent than most people think. A hundred percent. When people say to themselves, you know, I'm, I'm not creative or, or, you know, what I'm doing isn't creative, I think they, they should take a step back exactly like you're suggesting and imagine that what they did and what they said and how they acted and the decisions they made were completely scripted and invariant because there's parts of our behavior that are totally like that. I mean, when I get in to drive my car or I'm unlocking my front door, there's a very automated way that I re relate to reality, and that enables me to function efficiently and calmly and not have to spend too much time thinking about things that I want to have be automatic. But human beings need the ability to improvise. They need the ability to think on their feet and make all sorts of twists and turns in, in their decision-making. And all of that is really rooted in the same cognitive software that generates works of art and great scientific discoveries. Right. Human software. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> and there are, there are good biological reasons why it's only us, largely. I mean, uh, it's true that some indications of creativity exist in the wild, but they're very anecdotal and they're very limited. And you just can't look around at the world and see the buildings and movies and music and, uh, you know, medical hardware and smartphones and say that any animal comes close to, you know, exercising their imaginations in the way that we do. I think most people would agree that it's, it's higher order functioning. Um, as we look around at other species, like you say, there are some examples of birds and um, apes and monkeys using tools, which we've always, mm -hmm. back mm -hmm. when I was going to college, we would use that as kind of the threshold for creativity, the ability to apply tools or um, methods in novel situations. And it just doesn't reach the level that humans have, as you say, as you look around society, and my goodness, for everyone listening, you look around your desk. <laughs> right, exactly. There, there is, is creative expression in everything we do and, and everywhere we go. What I wonder is, is how do we take more responsibility for using this creativity to not only make our workplaces more successful, but also to, to find greater satisfaction in the work that we do by tapping into our creativity 
and finding those novel solutions? So that's actually, I think, a really profound question because it gets to the fact that too often, I think, creativity is looked at something that's bordering on mental illness or abnormal or a special gift or a luxury. Uh, it's how we often treat it in school systems. And one of the central things for David and me was to, to say this is something that is absolutely normal. It is awe-inspiringly ordinary. It is healthy. It is natural. And just as you would imagine that getting exercise is good for your spirit and good for your body, um, creativity is something that comes with such rewards for human beings um, in whatever way means something to you in your life. Um, it can be, um, you know, making new recipes or writing holiday cards, or it can be something, you know, about envisioning the future of IT. One thing that I, I have conversations with CEOs and senior managers and entrepreneurs all the time, and one thing that makes me feel like they're missing out on things is when I ask them, so what do you do outside of work? What do you find enriching? Mm. What are some of your hobbies? And they look right. at me with a blank stare. It's like, well, I work hard and then I relax or worse, watch TV, which I think <laughs> is, decreases your ability to make creativity if you watch more than an hour at a time, if it's something right. other than sports. I think sports involves and engages in a different way, for the most mm -hmm. part, anyway. <laughs> what do you say to people who have lost track or somehow have their, their sense and connection with creativity obscured through decisions that may have taken place when they were younger, but now each yeah. of us are adults listening to this, and we, we have the opportunity to, to reconnect with that part of ourselves. What would you say? Great question. So I would say step one is avoid ready-made. It's essentially the same thing that my parents did with my sister and me. Whatever yeah. you can find that you can make yourself, do it yourself. And Another important principle we have in the book is to realize that creativity is not just grabbing things out of the thin air. They're riffing on what already exists. So you take a favorite recipe and you start to mess with it. You change the ingredients and swap things out. Um, you, you take a favorite work of art and you, you twist it out of shape. You take something you care about, something you love, and you show that love by making it into something new. I, I think motivation is also very important, so pick things that mean something to you. Don't do it as an exercise or a labor, but you want to surprise your spouse with an incredible anniversary card. That's the time to make it yourself. I think that's a terrific tip. I think that one of the stories that you write about in a very novel way in the book is how it's important to not – how it's important to get perspective on the work that you're doing, and you talk about the – the debacle with um, both BlackBerry and Kodak, which, which mm -hmm. we're well familiar with. But what you suggest is really quite interesting. Can you talk about your perspective on where they suffered as a business because mm -hmm. of undervaluing creativity? Right. So this gets to a very important issue, which is that, for one thing, creativity is too often presented as being all about novelty. Uh, the scientific definition is novel and useful, but both of those words are flawed because they're provisional and they're based on the judgment of other people, and so it can constantly change. What really uh, we would argue gets to the essence of it is that human minds like to have one foot in the familiar and one foot in the unexpected, and we're constantly bridging the divide between those two things, and creativity is right in that sweet spot. It's trying to 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 find the... The, the perfect spot in between novelty and familiarity. 
Now, if you stay too close to the familiar, the risk is that people will just pass you by. And if you go too far into the novel and the unexpected, well, your public may not follow you. They're going to be disoriented and confused, and they won't understand how things fit together. And so uh, you'll see businesses make errors on both sides of those divides. So for Kodak and BlackBerry, they came up with wonderful technology, and they were the leading edge for a while, but they stayed too close to the familiar, and they were too resistant to change. And in case of BlackBerry, they didn't catch on how fast touchscreen cell phones would catch on, and in the case of Kodak, of course, they didn't anticipate how fast digital photography would catch on. So they remained with their feet too firmly planted in the familiar. Then there's other examples of uh, wonderfully far-reaching ideas that were just too far away from what people were comfortable with. And as brilliant as the concepts were, uh, no one's ever heard of them. Uh, and they died very quickly because they didn't find that sweet spot between novelty and familiarity. So for people listening who are running businesses and running departments and, and looking to apply creativity, one thing that they ought to always realize is that there is, and I love this phrase that's in the book, this dynamic tension, a dynamic balance between both the familiarity and the unexpected. Right. And one of the things that I think that everyone who is responsible for driving business objectives ought to be looking at is how much are we staying uh, close to the familiar? If you look at a, a maybe imagine as a Venn diagram, how much is the overlap on the familiar side and how much is on the unexpected side? And have we almost discarded enough ideas this quarter or are we staying too close to familiar? You know, if we don't have ideas that we're trying and, and completely bombing, we're not really experimenting. Yep. Do you think that that's yep. a valid approach? Absolutely. David and I were just speaking at a, a company retreat, and it was fascinating to hear them reflect back some of the ideas of the book. And one of the things they talked about is upgrading their website. And, you know, if they change everything all at once, people are like, hey, where's all the stuff that I'm used to using? Now what am I supposed to do? But if they stay fixed um, and nothing changes, then there's all sorts of capabilities that are not being exploited and explored and, uh, you know, it grows stale on the vine kind of thing. And so they were, they were literally trying to figure out, you know, what's the right proportion of introducing new twists and new features into the website. Uh, that, that should be an ongoing thought process for any forward-looking company. Another aspect of this, and you, you quote another one of my favorite people, Carol Dweck, is you talk about having a, a positive or growth mindset. What's the role of the role of importance of having an open attitude in order to foster creativity and, you know, the um, unexpected novelty, which is looking for just to apply existing things, looking for maybe new tools, new partnerships, new relationships, new technologies, all of these come into play. But if the culture has an attitude that doesn't include some of these characteristics, that might not be as successful. What do they need to look out for and what do they need to cultivate? So I think one of the most dangerous concepts is the idea of the finish line and that you have figured out the final solution, the landing point, and you're never going to move from that. Um, and even when something is a success, you have to be able to shake it up, give it up, move on, move past it. Um, because we're especially now living in a time where 
everything is changing so fast, uh, and the digital world is constantly creating this renovation. And so one of the great things about a growth mindset is it's not about, oh, well, I'm really smart and I'm successful and I need to keep proving that and hold on to that. It's about the process and that giving energy and curiosity and intensity to what you're doing and constantly striving for something that may feel like you never have a landing point, but that's exactly what the process is like. That's going to bring the best out of the people working on any problem. And it's exactly the motivation of any creative artist. I mean, Beethoven didn't write the Seventh Symphony and say, great, I've done it. It can't get any better than that. He's going to sit down a few weeks later and start on his Eighth Symphony. And there's this, the same way of looking at work that applies for him applies for any company. I know that you speak to companies and you go to conferences. I know that you're recently at South by Southwest. What are some of the questions that you get when people in business are looking to apply creativity and tap into this power that is so often overlooked and underutilized? We've gotten some fascinating questions, and it's really great to have the back and forth. You know, one of the big questions is, well, how do you know when you've come up with a great idea? And, you know, our answer on one level might be a little bit um, upsetting, but on another level, it's what I think leads to the greatest success, and that is you can't know for sure. So it's incredibly important to diversify. And because the sweet spot between novelty and familiarity is very hard to pin down, it changes even months of the year and the particular line of work and so on. It's very important to cover this whole spectrum of ideas that lie closer to what people are comfortable with and lie in the wacky terrain and everything in between. And what you find in the most innovative companies is they're constantly covering that spectrum because they know that any one guess is not likely to be correct. But if they make a lot of guesses over a whole range, one of them is going to land successfully. And so that's, I think, one of the most important points we make in the book and, and something that seems to really be resonating. When you think of companies that you're familiar with, what's something that people struggle as they look to implement what you've just described, creating a, a situation, a condition, a culture where you can experiment and encourage the novelty and come up with a range of ideas and then look to map them or evaluate them or what I always think of is is validating them with customer feedback in right. order to in order to bring it back and help them choose where to put additional funding and resources to pursue them once they've gone through the you know the blue sky creativity exercise so that's a great question i think one uh issue that has come up a lot is should it be the whole company or should it be a team so you know do you make us creativity and innovation in a company, an incredibly democratic process where, you know, literally there's a suggestion box and everyone is invited to submit ideas, or is it the work of most of the people in the company to, you know, fill out the paperwork and do the orders and keep everything on track, and it's one special dedicated team that's doing the exploration part. And I think that the answer is it's all of the above is possible, and it, de it depends on the size of the company, uh, the resources that can be de devoted. You, you have to, as the leader of the company, be uh, alert and sensitive to what your employees feel comfortable doing and perhaps even trying it out different ways. 
one of the things David and I constantly hesitate to do is say, well, there's this one right answer way of doing it that works for everybody, and if you just follow this program, you're sure to have a success, and you're going to be great innovators. There have been very successful companies <laughs> that have the, the innovators be just a team, and they're, I was so admiring of this company that we spoke of, which on, in contrast was incredibly democratic, and I love their process. They said that anyone could suggest an idea, but they also had to provide a way of testing it and evaluating it. And so it wasn't just enough to write, hey, it would be really cool if we did X and put it in the suggestion box, but here's how we could rapidly prototype it. Here's how we could do some A-B testing about it. You had to come up with a whole plan. And, you know, that's a wonderful uh, way of dealing with it that worked for that company. But, again, I would hesitate to say that that just should be the rule for everybody because in a very, very large company, maybe that's not practical. As many people read um, the book and get inspired by the ideas, what do you think might be a couple of the pitfalls that they would be drawn to that you could help them avoid by giving them some advice or guidelines in advance now? There's no doubt that creativity is risky. And whenever you're introducing something new, there's just no way anybody can guarantee can succeed. And and I, I get frustrated at books that, again, sort of promise, well, you know, you follow this program and, and it's you're, you're much more likely to succeed. I, I don't think uh, the history of innovation uh, is littered with the corpses of wonderful ideas even that have passed into oblivion. And so uh, it's very important to kind of balance between the things that are successful and the things that you're being speculative about. And don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't make it a make-or-break product that, that either this flies or we're ruined. But again, diversify for every speculative idea, have something that's more in tune with what's already been successful. I think that what you said is really important because, first of all, to start encouraging those meetings on some regular basis to show that there's truly a commitment to creativity and fostering that openness makes a huge yeah. difference. And then from that, those discussions, people will find that there's a process that evolves um, adopting some of the, the core principles, making sure that people know that we want to find out what we can explore and bring back. Um, I've worked with companies where they actually have dedicated hunting parties, and hunting parties can be attributed and assigned to hunt for ideas. They could hunt mm-hmm. for funding sources. They could hunt for other companies to acquire. And oh, yeah, just that's that really going cool. out to bring things back to the tribe and say, look, here's what we found. Here are the, the, the risks, here are the rewards, here are the benefits, here are the, the weaknesses, and then make a decision as a group. And to develop that in a way that actually shows some progress is very, very reinforcing. I know that if you or I walked into a, a classroom of five-year-olds and you just said, raise your hand if you could sing, don't mm. you think everyone would raise their hand? Absolutely, yep. If you walked into a corporate meeting room and asked the same question, how many of you can sing? I don't think that you'd see, you know, a similar size group. I don't think you'd see more than one or two hands. What is it that in a corporate culture it's not okay to admit or claim the creativity that would be the prerequisite to utilizing it? We know that every child on the planet plays. And – Yet, by the time we're adults, we say, oh, well, only a few of us are lucky enough to be creative. And mm-hmm. 
you know, where where does that distinction come from? Well, play, I think, is a word we often uh, talk use when we're talking about something fun for fun's sake, where the outcome isn't so important. So I'm building a sandcastle on the beach, and the wave's going to come and take it away, but I had fun doing it. You know, it's not important that there was some end, end product. Whereas when we use the word creativity, we're really pointing towards the goal, that we're going to achieve some outcome, whether it's a piece of music or a new model of smartphone, et cetera. But play and creativity, they lie on the same uh, plane, and they use exactly the same cognitive processes. And every single child who can play can also be creative. It's just that it's more pointed towards the goal. And so what's happened over time, unfortunately, in so much of our education and our training, is that we get convinced that play is something we grow out of as we need to have more reliable outcomes in our life and earn a living and things like that. It never goes away. That software is running from the beginning to the end of our lives. And, you know, when you're sitting in a, in a corporate uh, office looking at the people around you, you're looking at people who as children all played for whom exactly that same way of looking at the world still lives in their brains. And there's no no reason that that cannot be activated towards the goals that your company wants to achieve. How do you maintain, just for yourself, how do you maintain a, a sense of productivity and staying on track with pro, uh, projects that you work on? Are there particular tools that you use, or is there a methodology that you like to use very much? How is it that you stay on track and are able to accomplish so much, even while you explore the outer reaches of creativity? This is what works for me. It doesn't mean it's the right thing for everybody, but composers tend to be very deadline-driven because we're aiming for a concert. And, you know, unfortunately, you can't show up a few days before the performance and say, hey, string <laughs> quartet, you know, now that I heard you rehearse it, I realized that the, the second movement would be a lot better if it was twice as long. Can you postpone the concert and I'll make it better? You have to deliver it ready to go. And so uh, you get trained to measure backwards from the due date what you have to accomplish along the way. And I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of creating intermediate deadlines so that you know you're going to make your eventual target. When you start a composition and you're staring at a blank page and that, those rehearsals and performances are far off in the future and you're, you're frustrated, your first ideas don't feel very good and there's loads of emails you could answer and, you know, take your kids to a movie, what keeps you on track? And what keeps you on track is an intermediate deadline that says, well, listen, I have to write the first two minutes of my piece by next month, otherwise I'll never make my target. And so whenever I'm writing a composition, depending on how long it is and how many players it's for, I'll divide up uh, the time that I have to write on it into inter interior segments, and I'll, I'll hit those signposts. And, boy, it's a great feeling when you know you're on track and, and the level of anxiety and stress goes way down. And if you happen to miss a signpost, well, you have to readjust and say, okay, now I'm going to have to do a little bit more in the time that I've left. But that's that's the way that I work. It's interesting because David, as a scientist, is not as deadline-driven as I am. Uh, scientists have to be prepared for the fact that they could run an experiment 10 different ways before it actually produces uh, the kind of result that would make for a good article. Um, and so they have to be very patient and open and say, well, look, I can't say that I have to finish by this date because maybe my experiment won't work. And so he'll operate on a very different principle. And that's why, again, I, I, I hesitate to generalize uh, 
but it's useful to look out in the world and find different people's habits and try them out yourself and figure out what works best for you. Do you have a favorite tool that you use to stay on track? Are you a, um, do you put do you write on a paper calendar? Do you use an electronic calendar? Are you a fan of some sort of project management software that helps you stay on track? You know, thinking in terms of just your your concert. For yeah. Instance. So I would say uh, a calendar. Uh, absolutely, I have to mark off on a calendar. I've got a month to, to write this portion of the piece and so on. And what I'll often do in composing, because composing gets easier the further along you are in the piece, is I'll give more time for the beginning and less and less time as the piece is progressing. Uh, again, just knowing my own working habits. I'll tell you the tool that I don't use and that I do recommend people use only very, very judiciously, and that is an eraser. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that you want to do, um, I'm religious, for instance, I work at the computer, and I'm religious about saving every single draft as a different file, even if I just change one note. Because the risk with a computer is if you overwrite the file, you can never get it back. And sometimes you're working on an idea and you're developing it, but you overdo it. And the end point, which you thought was really successful, you realize was, no, it wasn't very good. Uh, I need to backtrack and go five steps back, and I will always be able to find those earlier files because I, I keep them. And I think no matter what line of work you're in, the eraser is the most dangerous tool because you're covering over your tracks. Um, and, and, you know, effacing them uh, rather than preserving the, the whole range of possibilities that you're considering. That's interesting. So you always want to have access to your intermediate work product because it might be better than some final destination that you reach, and you need to be able to go back and, and recreate that quickly. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's an unfortunate sense that the smartest people are the ones who arrive at the best answers the fastest and with the least number of options. And actually, when you look carefully in literally every discipline, it's exactly the opposite. The smartest and the most successful people are the ones who are generating the most options and figuring out elegant ways to choose among them, but are constantly generating new possibilities. And the risk when you think the first way is you think, oh, well, I don't need to keep any of the stuff that didn't work because I haven't landed yet on the great solution. But that's erasing the the, the harvest that's possible from all sorts of um, intermediate thoughts, which themselves may lead on new pathways that will lead to something really fruitful. And so you want to you literally want to live in a gallery surrounded by options, which are themselves constantly developing. If it sounds head spinning, that's exactly the fun of it. And that's why that <laughs> part of life is so enjoyable and, and, and so magnificent. And, and, you know, human culture illustrates the joy we have in that as we hear even certain archetypal stories told over and over and over again different ways. It's just a manifestation of what's going on in our brains all the time. Well, Tony, you've been really generous in sharing so many great insights on creativity. From the very practical when you were growing up and now in your family, you, you give everyone opportunities to make things, whether it's greeting cards or any sort of tribute or gift. The importance of making sure that as you uh, worked on this book, how you had a process that you worked on with David as your, as your co-author, and you saw some of the new things that were coming along, especially as you asked deeper and deeper questions about how people 
user brains and the novelty versus familiarity and how it applies everything from corporate boardrooms to kindergarten playgrounds. I think that uh, I wholeheartedly agree with you that the attitude we bring towards creativity, whether it's in our own personal sphere or whether it's applying it in a small team or across a whole company culture, is absolutely vital. And when you ask yourself, how do you know when you get a great idea? That's really important for companies that are looking to adopt and encourage more creativity. So I just want to thank you so much for sharing on my quest for the best. I'm Tony, and if there's one nugget of wisdom you'd want to leave listeners with, what would it be? And thank you for a great conversation, Bill. So I would say, you know, if if you're at a point in life where you're feeling like, geez, I'm not as creative as I want to be, start with something you really love and you really care about and avoid the ready-made and make it yourself. And it will be a powerful affirmation that that software is still alive and well in your brain. But I just want to thank you again. My, my guest has been Tony Brandt, a co-author of The Runaway Species. Thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Bill, thank you so much for having me. It's been a total joy. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I'd appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the, the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments, and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.